0: The Plumley Pod, episode 25.
1: Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education,
0: The Plumley Pod. Hello, and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley. I've been away for a week. Apologies, I had end-of-term-itis. I'm a real teacher and yes, I get sick at the end of term. We're going to be talking about that this morning very, very shortly. Um, But most importantly, my guest is Simon Day. He is the co-author of The TV Delusion and he is making his second appearance. Welcome back, Simon.
1: Hello, Sarah. Um, Great to see you again. Thanks very much for having me on so soon after the previous one. It's a pleasure to be back with you.
0: Back by popular demand, it has to be said. I had some really interesting emails and some wonderful comments after your last appearance. And there's people who are reading your book now and asking me questions. And I thought, you know what? It's just easier to get you back on, press play and let you go, let you run wild. So on that, I know we have a very, very quick chat off air. And I want to talk a little bit about the flu Uh, very topical. We've had two years of uh, no flu, apparently, because we had something else that was quite like the flu, but we couldn't call that flu for political reasons. That was special flu that was called COVID-1984 or branch COVIDianism, depending on on your viewpoints. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I had a very interesting thing happen literally last week. I was too sick to work, which is very rare. But when it does happen, it always happens during quote-unquote school holidays. My term finished last week, and I immediately got sick. Now, this is not a thing that's particular to me. If you hang out in teaching circles, teachers know this phenomenon as end-of-term-itis or some variation of that phrase, which basically means there's a whole tranche of teachers that get sick every single school holiday. So they'll be sick at October half term, they'll be sick at Christmas, they'll be sick at Easter, they'll be sick at June half term, and they'll be sick at the start of the summer. I never used to book a summer holiday for the first week of the six-week school holidays because I knew I was going to be ill. I need a week to get better and then I would go on holiday and this was a regular, I was literally able to plan my holidays a year in advance based on knowing I was going to be ill in this particular week. And this is not weird, this isn't just a, a thing that's particular to me, this is very, very common in teaching. So, it's occurred to me, particularly recently, how is that in any way compatible then with germ theory? Because the sickness typically that most teachers report is flu-like symptoms, stuffy nose, so runny nose, headache, sore throat, feeling exhausted, temperature, all the usual stuff that you would classify either as a common cold or as the flu virus, which I don't even know if those things are different, to be honest with you. So how can this be completely ignored one and the same time that Many, many teachers are ill like on a schedule. Like, how, are we seriously expected to believe that some child makes them sick exactly on the last day of term every single time? Like, How does this fit with so-called germ theory? I don't get it.
1: Well, it's a good question, Sarah, and this isn't the only case where a cause is seemingly transmitted from one person to another and it not be down to any kind of germ or anything. And perhaps we'll come back to some other examples in a minute. But just to get going... I think one of our, the problems we have as human beings in understanding the world around us is the way we approach language and the lack of consideration we, we've placed on what language actually does and what, what it actually is and how it's used. And is an excellent example of it. I mean, there, there are other examples as well, but this one is, is a great one to start with. So if I take the word flu, what does it mean? Now, the first thing... I would think of at least three different things that it could mean. So the first thing is the actual, there's the word flu itself. And normally when we're talking about the word itself, we put it in double quotes and that tells other people that we're talking about the the actual word. Now, in this case, of course, the word flu is is a contraction of the word influence. And when this was initially observed, people said that you're influenced by something but they didn't know what the influence was. They just, they just surmised that there was some external thing influencing you. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's a very general kind of concept. You know, it could be that you've got a a virus or something, or it could be that you've, I don't know, picked up an infection, a bacterial infection, or it could be that just something in the environment has poisoned you, or it could be any number of other things. There's, there's literally hundreds of things. It could possibly be psychological, which we um, discussed in the past, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that covers the first meaning, which is this the word flu. And you have to ask yourself, what what is language in the first place? So let's pick a simple example. Imagine you are here around my house and I wanted you to pick up a bowl of strawberries. Okay, obviously I could tell you, I could just say, Sarah, please pick up the bowl of strawberries. But there's another way I can do it as well. I could point at the bowl of strawberries, and I could point at you. And then I could gesture some kind of um, as if I was doing a mime on stage of, of picking up strawberries kind of action and then vigorously point at you. And you, you pretty well get the message. So, But I wouldn't have had to have said any words, and yet these are the same. So what language is, it's just a fancy way of pointing. Okay, so sometimes you're pointing at things, actions, or, or which are verbs or objects, which are nouns. But sometimes you can be pointing at um, more abstract things. Like if I say abundance, for instance, I can't actually point my finger at abundance, but I can point it at using the word abundance. So you can point at things which aren't possible to point at just with your finger. So the first thing to, to understand then is, is that a word is a pointer. It's like, it's like a reference. I, I would say it's a reference. And the thing to which it refers is the referent. That's, that's the thing that the real object or the real idea that the, 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 that's on the end of your finger where you're pointing. So with flu, there are at least two different reference that it could be. So the first is the set of symptoms. So for instance, if I see you and you've got the flu, I might see your nose streaming, I might see you sweating, I might see you you know, looking poorly and having a fever, and so on and so on. And, and similarly, when I've got the flu, I, I see the same in myself, and we, we, we kind of naturally assume that we're going through the same thing. So this, this is what I would call a manifestation. So this is something that you can see or hear, something with your five senses. But the second meaning is a virus, okay? So what this is, is this is a, a mechanism, a supposed mechanism, I should say, uh, by which these symptoms are supposed to be transferred from one person to another by, by some kind of communicable pathogen. Now, this is no one's ever seen a virus, okay? because they're, two, they're 100 nanometers wide, so you can't see them with any optical instrument. No one's ever seen a virus, and people claim to have got shots of them with electron microscopes, but these are just kind of fudges. They just show you some black dots, which they tell you is a virus, but it could be anything, basically. And for it to be a proper theory that actually is a model for reality, we'd have to do some basic tests. Like, for instance, you'd have to take someone who has got the symptoms and take a sample from them and see this virus. Take someone who's healthy, take a sample of them and not see the virus. This is just, to me, this is just common sense. But unfortunately, none of these, uh, there are other common sense things as well. I I won't bother going to them all, but this one kind of illustrates the overall trend but no one has ever proved that. Every attempt to do this has failed because they find those dots in both healthy people and in ill people.
0: I can absolutely back you up on this as well with peer-reviewed literature. And I just will for the, for the sake of the audience. This is something that everyone with any interest in in what's just happened to us over the last uh, couple of years should read. It's a study from the Centre for Disease Control. It was published in May 2020, and it's called Non-Pharmaceutical Measures for Pandemic Influenza in Non-Healthcare Settings, Personal Protective and and Environmental Measures. Basically, it's a meta-study Trying to figure out whether PPE, personal protective equipment, works in non pharmaceutical settings, i.e., in the community or at home. And there's this wonderful, wonderful phrase that I I still to this day cannot get over. I I fell off, I almost fell off my chair when I read this because I'd never read any um, peer reviewed science before before uh, the pandemic began, because I, I, had no, I had no reason to. Yes, I'd read books on medicine. Yes, I, I'd, I'd read lots of... I'd watched documentaries like vax and so on and so forth, but I'd never bothered to go to the actual original studies myself. Anyway, it says here that... Uh, and I'm quoting directly from this study, and I will leave this in the description so that people can check it out for themselves. It says here, influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory droplets. What? Influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory drop. What do you mean you don't know? Why haven't you cited the study that shows how viruses are transmitted? Uh, It goes on to say, uh, you know, the size distribution of particles responsible for transmission remains unclear. And in particular, there is a lack of consensus on the role of fine particle aerosols in transmission. I, I strongly yeah. urge people to go and read this for themselves because, pardon my ignorance, but two years ago, I had no idea that they didn't actually know how viruses are spread from human to human. And and yet all of the stuff that's just happened for the pre, you know, during the pandemic, during what I call COVID-1984, all of that stuff is based on a belief. And it says it in a scientific, a so-called scientific piece of research, a real meta-study, a uh, scientific journal you know, proper the science people uh, who have way better qualifications than I have are telling me that influenza virus is believed to be transmitted predominantly by respiratory droplets.
1: Yeah, so you, you've hit the nail on the head, I think. So, immersed in the phraseology you've quoted there is all the indication we need that this is a religion and not a science. Because you've you got the key, the key word believe as clear as gold there. Now, of course, one could turn this into a science by taking these so-called droplets from someone who sneezed or coughed or whatever, who's, who's ill, and putting them in someone who's well and seeing if they become ill. And the, the trouble is, right, that this, this – and it, by doing that, we could turn the, this belief system into a science. The trouble is that, as far as I know, people have attempted to do this and these attempts have failed. So they, there's the problem right there. This is the reason why it's believed to be transmitted. Because when they attempt to, attempt to turn that belief into a science, it, it doesn't work and it gets proved wrong. And that's why they, they, will, they will never tell you about that. Because if they did, you know, the game would be up, right?
0: I would have failed many, many of my academic exams and qualifications. I would have failed if, if I'd have written something like that. I'm not allowed to state something and base my research on a belief. I have to cite another study or say, you know, based on the theor- this theory, which was which was tested um, in in this in 1933 by this scientist, uh, he found he you know he showed this, he showed that, and therefore I'm studying this based on those previous findings. But this this just sits there. It doesn't cite any study where a virus has been shown to be passed from one human being to another. Why why not? There should be loads of these things, shouldn't there? Based on what we've just had to live through for two years. And I'm I'm angry at myself for not having gone there before. I, I literally there'll be people listening to this who cannot believe what, what we're talking about here, but that their own science, the science of virology, it, well, isn't it based on on belief, in even in that in their own words there, that it's believed
1: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. We have to, can we're, that be? we're we're asked to to trust the science and believe the science. But We shouldn't
0: need to, should we? We should be able to see it. Yeah,
1: exactly. These these are concepts which is not necessary with science. Trust and belief are things you do in religion. Science um, should be self-explanatory. If you want to see the science, you should be able to do an experiment and uh, repeat the science yourself. But, of course, the problem is with this is when you do do the experiment, it doesn't work. And that means the the model doesn't work. And, you know, there are a lot of... um, Models for things. I mean, this is an example of a, a model. You know, the um, the third definition of virus, not not the man, uh, flu, sorry, not the manifestation, but the the model. And that model is always something that's unproven. So science is always um, predicated around the, You know, the best you can do at the time. But in this case, you know, we've got a, a belief system which is actually contrary to observation, or contrary to experiment. And, you know, this happens with all kinds of things. And I'm always reminded of this thing that happened to me when I was a kid. I don't know how old I was, about seven or eight. And I had a a friend at school and she said to me that she'd come up with a new way of doing long multiplication. Now, uh, uh, hopefully your readers will remember how to do long multiplication. It's been, I must say, it's been a while since I've had to do it. But um, there you go, you know, multiply the column, carry the one, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff. And She'd come up with a new method of doing this, and it was ingenious. She took me through it and it involved taking random numbers out of the two numbers and multiplying them and adding them and things like that, and she arrived at the, the result. But the, the problem was that the number that she arrived at was wrong. It just wasn't the product of those two numbers. And this this is the thing. If you're going to come up with a model for something, it has to actually – predict the manifestation, predict what you see. If it doesn't predict what you see, then that means that model is no good. It's, it's, it's wrong. And you need to go and find something else. And that's the problem with, with the idea of flu being a virus is that, you know, it just doesn't, it isn't borne out by the experimental data, right?
0: Well, make no mistake, if they had the evidence that viruses were spread from human to human via droplets, they would cite the study in which that was proven. That's what science, that's what we're all led to believe yeah. science is. That's what we're all but like I I'm I'm more arts than science, really. I I I do love language and, and reading and uh, theatre, those kinds of things, history, literature. But I I I in my belief, I guess, I I I believed that scientists were doing things properly. And I think almost I think most humans who are not directly involved in either medicine or science and not doctors or not virologists, not heart surgeons, we tend to think, well, I'm doing my job in teaching mathematics properly. So probably they're doing their job in uh, virology properly. But then when you actually go and read their own work, they've got... Uh, Simon, I cannot explain like my... My cogn- the, the sense of cognitive dissonance when I'm reading the word belief in 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 um, uh, professional medical journals, published science. Like I I ju- I'd, re- I'd read your book obviously quite a long time ago, which I love. Uh, the TV delusion: A Psychology of Belief. And so I, I know I I knew lots of things weren't right, and that there, were, there were there were major problems, but I didn't. Understand that even down to the most basic assertion, it hasn't. It that's what it is. It's an assertion. It's not been backed up. It hasn't been tested, and it's something that we could test for. It's not like you can't create a test where you can prove or disprove that a virus is spread from this person to that via droplets. Take the droplets, put them into the other people, and observe what happens. What's so hard about that?
1: Yeah, and so it's, it's actually worse than that. The so the idea of taking the droplets, putting them in someone else. And the idea of taking a sample from someone and finding the virus and taking a sample from a healthy person and not finding the virus. These things, which you and I would refer to as common sense, they actually have an official name. They're called Cox postulates. And these uh, dictate how you gather evidence and, and demonstrate that an illness is caused by a pathogen. And they're, they're, to be honest with you, there, there might be a few more of them, but the basic ones are what we've just talked about, and they're kind of obvious. And they're kind of things that um, a child will come up with. So if you put the idea to a child and say to it, how would you, how would you prove that flu is transmitted from one to another? They, they come up with the same things. You know, it's not rocket science. It's just basic common sense, Cox postulates. And the trouble is that the whole pseudoscience of virology declared itself immune from Cox postulates. Uh, a while ago, they said that, no, they didn't have to follow it. Now, of course, this is is true with all religions, isn't it? All religions will tell you that they don't have to obey common sense and science. So a Christian will tell you that a man can walk on water. And when you point out the science that says he can't and the lack of evidence, they'll say, well, that's your problem. You're looking at science and evidence, but this body of knowledge is exempt from science. It lies outside it. And it's the same with the religion of virology. It's it's exactly the same thing. It's just a different arena. But the same rules of this apply. And it is, as you say, staggering. Staggering. Yeah, totally agree with you.
0: I was genuinely horrified. And I feel bad that I was so shocked by it because I should have known better. Like given the books that I've read and, and the people that I associate with. I really ought to have known better, but it still was 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 stu- like just stunning, as you said, the gold standard in your face belief, belief, belief. What is that doing in your your so-called wonderful science? You know, if it's no better than a belief, what, what are we do? What is this? What are we doing here? You were t- you were telling me that um, you started off with the the sort of three meanings of the, of the word flu. So the three that I have in my head here are the actual word, which we would use in quotation marks, flu, the manifestation, which we might call symptoms, like five sense reality, snotty nose, whatever, temperature, and then the model of the virus, which is this, for me, it's this fake, um, a fake model, a fraudulent model, uh, something that perhaps, how, how has it been fiddled I suppose to what I'm asking? Like, the propagandists are, are at work here, are they not, with these different meanings yeah. of, of the same words. What, 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 what's, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, so, so this, is, this is very clever um, psychological manipulation. So the, the aim of the propagandists in, in, this particular, in this particular example, and also probably in others, is to force you to coalesce the manifestation and the model in your mind so they become um, one in the same thing. And once your, your mind has been controlled in such a way to accept that the model and the manifestation is the same, then you will be adamant that it's caused in this way and, and won't be able to break out of this mental trap. And, of course, that's what they want to do because once they um, can convince you that the flu is transmitted with a the virus, they can then control you by forcing you to wear their rigid, religious clothing that the fear muzzle um, forcing you to take their, their poison injections, so in, engage you full in, in the religious death cult, and all because you've accepted this coalescing of the, of the manifestation and the model. And the way to free ourselves, of course, is to focus on what these words mean and the difference between the model and the word and the manifestation. And as soon as we, we see the difference, we're free of the trap.
0: It's it's the same with it's like my sort of anecdotal teacher scenario at the at the at the very beginning of this podcast where I talk about teachers who are regular are regularly to the day sick with what what would be described as the flu in terms of the manifestation the symptoms that is flu so if germ theory is correct and viruses are spread from human to human via droplets. Well, that would mean that you coincidentally got sick on the last day of term because a child happened to give you their droplets, which were in had enough viral load, were in enough quantity to make you sick on the last day of term. Each each at the end of each term, three times a year, three terms a year.
1: How convenient that they do that right on the last day, all, all at once,
0: every single time. Like, ha- yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, I'm <laughs> sorry, that's that's pure coincidence theory. That's completely bonkers.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you say this because um, one um argument that people often use to say that flu is transmitted by some kind of pathogen is they say, oh, how come when I see my kid and he's got a flu or a cold, I get it a couple of days later? And, you know, they use this as a justification that it's a pathogen. But
0: well, my argument is I saw them and I didn't get sick.
1: Yeah, exactly. They see their kid and they don't get sick sometimes as well. It's just that they forget about those times, right? Because they didn't get sick. So they've got nothing to remember. But, you know, another explanation for this, assuming that they do get sick by seeing the kid who's sick, and there is some kind of relationship there, then it could just as equally be psychological. And I think, you know, there are other examples of this we were talking about a little earlier about, uh, for instance, um, if, if you get two, two girls to share a flat, more often than not, they will menstruate at the same point in time. So it's, it, it gives you the the idea that something's been transmitted in some way. You know, I try and use the term loosely, right? But nobody has ever said, no, nobody ever explains this or focuses on it, or no one's ever tried to claim there's a virus that that transmits once once a month from one to the other or anything like that. So clearly we've got transmission, which is. An example of alleged transmission, which is right in front of our faces. It's
0: influence. You said time. it at the start. The word influence. influence.
1: Exactly. Influence. Flu comes out of yeah, yeah.
0: influence. That, that woman has been yeah. influenced by, and, and that's the bastardization of language, isn't it? The flu. Influence. No, she's been influenced. She hasn't got the flu. She didn't catch the flu. She was influenced in, into behaving, in into her bodily functions, behaving in, in a different way. And you're perfectly correct, by the way. It happened at drama school. All of the girls were ended up menstruating at the exact same time. And at uh, drama school, you spend yeah. a lot of time with each other. Uh, and it, we, we, were, we were giggling because the that's uh, supposed to happen to nuns in the nunnery. And yet there we were at drama school, which is very, very different. Perhaps the antithesis of a nunnery, um, if, if you get my drift. Um, and, and yet there we were all menstruating at the same time. So yeah, for sure, there is some stuff that... And, and the science hasn't explained that, has it? Where is the science for that?
1: Well, it's interesting because you could quite easily design some experiments to investigate, couldn't you? So, for instance, I'd, I'd get a house, and i put a glass partition down the middle of the house and stick one of them in one half and the other in the other half. See what happens. And see if it still happens. Okay, so if, you, if the glass panel is, is there and it's, um, you know, it still happens, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it would, would happen or not. I have no idea. But, you know, that would be the first place to start. If it, if it did happen, then... It isn't, and so people often say it's hormones or pheromones or whatever, and they somehow go out into the air and go into the other one or something like that. I, I, don't, I don't know if it is or not, but the glass experiment would start the ball rolling to investigate that hypothesis. And again, you know, if, if the hypothesis didn't match the manifestation, you, you'd need to discard it. But to the best of my knowledge, nobody's ever done an experiment like that.
0: Why? Um, and and that's that it because a
1: lot of people have got a very a vested. Well, they've got a lot of people have got a vested, uh, vested um, you know, interest, whatever, in um, in not yeah vested interest in, in not doing that and not uncovering the result because as soon as they got close to seeing what the cause of the transmission was in that case, people would then start doubting their their virus agenda, and that would die. Uh, the whole game, wouldn't it? So they can't have that, and therefore that is just silently ignored and it's never spoken about, which, which I find interesting.
0: Well, it, it certainly is. And it, it, it goes back to I'm ranting about this teacher thing, but I, I don't understand how teachers can simultaneously go around saying that viruses are transmitted from human to human via droplets, therefore we must wash our hands and wear masks, etc. And then on the other hand, they they literally know, many of them literally know on which date they're going to be ill. Is this is the day after the end of term. And this is, I'm not like being you know, funny about this. There's tons of blogs. If you go and research it on the internet, you'll you will hear teachers laughing and joking about, oh, um, guess what it is? I'm sick. Oh, yes, therefore it's a holiday, or it's a, a, an inset day, or it's a, you know, I'm not teaching children day. And and this, this, how can you simultaneously hold on to these two highly conflicting pieces of information? And, and and not be and not be disturbed by it. I can understand the cognitive dissonance where you're like you're um, faced with two things that you are holding to be simultaneously true that can't be. I understand that, but how are they not feeling the cognitive dissonance of that? That I, that I don't. Well, understand.
1: It's, it's again, yeah. So it, it goes back to a subject I think we touched upon briefly last time, which which is the idea that there are two levels of knowledge. So one is kind of a knowledge which is based on people reading and parroting things. So these people will parrot this idea that they've caught this disease coincidentally at the end of term. So they're quite happy to accept that there's something wrong with the narrative, but on a verbal level. But as soon as you put it to them that this means that the idea of viruses is, is fake, they'll, they'll become angry and start digging their heels in. So, you know, they're fine to say that they, they don't believe the narrative. When it comes to actually not believing the narrative, it's a different thing entirely. And th- this happens in, in so many cases. Now, I think the example I gave last time was, if you say to someone, the newspapers are full of lies, they'll quite happily say, yeah, 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 the newspapers are full of lies, blinking press, they're always lying. But then if you give them an actual example of something that's a lie, they'll start defending it and getting angry. And, you know, there's a big difference here between what people say and what people actually think. It's like there's two different entities. Um, experiencing that.
0: Yeah, you touched on that in in your book. I can't remember the precise chapter, but it was when you were comparing the work of Milgram, Ash and Sheriff. I don't know if you want to sort of uh, dip into that. Just from the perspective of um, holding on to those beliefs temporarily Uh, In the first two examples, that will be the Milgram and the Ash experiments. And then those that hold on to those beliefs permanently from the experiment, as in the sheriff. Could you just sort of flesh that out very nicely? And uh, it's a gentle pace for people who might not have have come across this research, please.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. When Joe and I wrote this section, we were obviously thinking about the psychological aspects of these experiments. And I'll come on to describe the experiments in just a minute. since that point in time, I've begun to realize there might be some kind of deeper significance to this. But let's start with what these experiments are. So the idea of the, these things are um, an exercising conformity. So they are attempting to um, deduce the mechanisms by which people will conform to a narrative and the extent to which they have conformed and, and what controls the the rate of conformance. So with the solomon ash experiment which is probably my favorite so i'll I'll start with that they um had a a group of people sitting in a line like in a panel in uh, university students and the lecturer drew three lines on the on the whiteboard or whatever it was in front of them and so lines a b and c and Uh, A and B were the control lines, and they were very different in length. So a short one and a long one, and they're not like close, so you can make a mistake and you know think one was longer than the other or something. There, you know, one was like twice as long as the other. And then there'd be a third line, C, and they'd draw that on the board as well, and they'd make it really obviously equal in length to one of the two lines, A A and B. So they wouldn't try and trick people by doing it in the middle or anything like that. They'd make it obvious. So it's not it's not one of these things where it's a perception thing with an optical illusion they're trying to trick you or anything like that it's very basic and what they do they'd invite each of the panel in turn to say which of the two lines a and b the test line c is closest to in length and they do a few trial runs first where everyone just tells the truth so and and what happens everyone just says oh it's closest to a because it's a short line or something and then what happens is they they throw in a few stooges who are there to put a spanner in the works. So the initial guy will deliberately give the wrong answer. He'll say that it's closest to B, even though it's closest to A.
0: And that's because he's a paid then the actor, right? And the second guy,
1: who's also a stooge, the paid actor, the shill, or the, the plant, or the stooge, whatever you want to call them. And let's say there's five people. I can't remember how many people they had on the panel now. It's about, about five. The first four of them would actually be paid actors. And the only person who's actually taking part at the experiment is the, is the fifth person. They're, they, they're not in on it. The others are all in on it. And the, the the question they're asking is, will the last person conform with the incorrect answers of the first four, or will they strike out and say what's true? And the conform, the conformity rate is very, very high. I can't remember how high it is now. It's something I've like got it. 75%. 40. Seventy that high. God, that's yes. just staggering, isn't
0: yeah,
1: it? Yeah, I've got a so 75 Chapter 17. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 75% of them will go with the um the wrong answer. And then 25% will go with the the right answer. And it's an exercise in conformity. So after the experiment, they interviewed the the subjects, you know, the individuals who are on the end of the line. Because they repeated it with different students, different, you know, different backgrounds, blah, blah, blah. And some of them said that they felt that the first four people just could see something they couldn't. So it's, it's perceptional conformity. And the other one said that they knew something they didn't. So it's informational conformity. I might have got this slightly wrong. But, but in either way, when, when it was pointed out, when they were asked after the interview, after the experiment, they all said that they thought the answer was that the you know, the correct answer. They felt that the answer they'd given was wrong. And they, when the challenge to explain why they'd given the wrong answer, they, they came up with these reasons, like, like they thought these people were better than them or something like that. But the, the, the idea, the notion that their answer was dispelled as soon as the, the whole thing was revealed. Now with the auto... Is it autokinetic, the other one? You've got it in front of yeah, you. That's
0: the, yeah, that's sheriff. Yeah, that's sheriff. Well, yes. Milgram, do you want to do Milgram first because that's a, a, a similar, like, yeah. And, and this is, a, I think, this is a really interesting one. It's quite nasty, isn't
1: it? Yeah, let's do the Milgram one. This Milgram one is a lot more famous than either of the other two, and I think most people have heard about it, but maybe don't understand the details. So, in the Milgram experiment, there's a the the subject is brought in and they're sat in front of a a console, and it's got a um, a knob on there with a voltages written on it and a button to administer a shock. And allegedly, the, the wires from the back of the machine go through the wall and into another room where the, the victim is, and they're wired up to this machine. And the, in the room with the, the subject, the guy controlling the machine, there's a, a guy with a lab coat on. So he's the, the symbol of authority. and that, That's kind of important. And the, the lab coat guy explains that the experiment is to see how well the, the, uh, the guy in the other room, the guy that can't see, see how well his memory can be improved by electric shocks. So they, they ask him to, to remember some things and read them out. And if he gets it wrong, he is given an electric shock by, the, by the, 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 the real subject of the experiment, the, the guy who's, who's really being experimented on. But of course, there's no actual wires at all. There's just like a light bulb to tell him when he's pressed the button and they'll, they'll scream. Uh, is
0: that an actor next door, right?
1: <laughs> an actor, exactly. So, so again, we've got a stooge, an actor in the, in the next door room and then we've got the experimenter and then you've got the real subject which is the guy controlling the knobs and the guy with the white coat is the one instructing the person to give the shocks and he's told in advance if you, if you turn it above, you know, 100 volts, it'll kill them or, or 200 volts, it'll kill them. But in the majority of cases, not all cases, the, the the subject will keep increasing the voltage and applying the shock whenever the guy in the white coat tells them. So the real experiment is to see if someone can be coerced into administering a lethal electric shock to someone they don't know and have never met just, just because someone who's telling them to do it has got a white coat on. It's 65%. And 65%. Uh, it's always staggers to me to hear Amazing. how high the, the conformity is. And, you know, it's not that the... They won't know what's going on because this person's screaming, and they can hear the screams. Right, and they coming were told the next, next what door. a
0: lethal dose would be before the, the official experiment, the unofficial yes. experiment began. Yes. And, yeah. and it literally says it's um the, the, the so what what's happening here is sixty five percent of the people administering the electric shocks did so at a fatal at what would have been a fatal amount. So That's they right. knew that yeah. they would be killing somebody in very simple terms, 65% of of the participants um, willingly killed somebody because a guy in a white coat told them to.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to know what percentage of the other ones you know, how high did the other people go? I mean, if it were me, I'd like to think I would just refuse to do it at all. But then I suppose it wouldn't be much of an experiment, would it, because I'd just walk out, so it'd be over fairly quickly. But it'd be interesting to know what, what the others did, you know, how close they got to that. The the lethal alleged lethal mark.
0: And I'm, I'm even worse than you. Recorded, but. Because I, I'd like to know did the, did the electric shocks actually improve memory up to a certain point as well? I'd like to know the nasty bit too. The really well, nasty maybe bit. They,
1: maybe they did if there were any actual electric shock. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Did, did, it, <laughs> yeah, did it actually it, uh, improve if, memory? If it seemed
1: to improve the memory. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. Take us to and Sheriff
1: shall we move on to. The,
0: yeah. Take us to yeah, yeah.
1: We'll move on to the last one. Yeah, so the last one is the sheriff one, and this is the autokinetic thing. I think I, think I always get the name of this one wrong. Maybe you'll be able to correct me. Um, I've got it right. That's the first time. That's good. And so what happens with these people? These people are put into, in, in groups of three or four, and they're put into a darkened room. And by darkened, I mean completely blacked out room. And in the room, dangling on, on a string is a, is a light bulb, and that's the only light in the room. So basically, they can see the light bulb, but they can't see any other points of reference. So I guess the the walls are painted black or whatever, and the the light bulb is quite dim. It's not like a 100-watt light bulb. It's like a torch bulb or something. So it doesn't illuminate the room. So the idea is when you see the light bulb, you can only see the light bulb. You can't see everything else is black. And under these circumstances, everyone will perceive the light as moving. This is one of those standard kind of illusions like the that candlestick and the people's faces that that is quoted a lot. So, you know, it's not uh, something weird that people see it as moving or anything. It's just, it's just normal because there's no point of reference. So, but what these people were asked to do, they were asked to describe what they saw and describe how much the, the light bulb moved. And pretty much they all had consensus. So if someone said, yeah, I saw it moving about a foot, they'll all say they saw it moving a foot, or sometimes they say saw it moving an inch, and they'd all say they saw it moving an inch. So they'd always all agree on how much they saw it moving. And furthermore, when they're told afterwards that the light bulb wasn't moving, it was just on a string, they all remain adamant that they saw it moving. So this is different from the Solomon Ash one, where where when the mechanism is revealed to them, they, they kind of cave in. But in this case, they, they don't cave in. They're absolutely adamant that they saw it. And this, again, is, is, is um, used to describe like group conformity. So, you know, you've got a group of people and they all agree on, they have a consensus on this uh, wrong answer.
0: This thing that never happens. I wonder if it's not literally... more. I think it's
1: more. Yeah, I, I think there's probably more to it than that, than simply psychology. I, I don't really... Really know. Reminds it, me kind of the Salem like this witch whole trials, flu thing, isn't it?
0: And COVID nineteen eighty four. Yeah. yeah, the same. It's the same thing. They, I think they've yeah, seized on this where,
1: one. Yeah, where in the, in the witch trials, in, in some of them, they didn't even say what the person was supposed to have done no until crime. after they'd hanged them, and so they they they, hacked, they got all these people in the court to say that this person was a witch, but no, at no point did anyone say, oh. They're a witch, they made my pig's legs drop off or something like that, nothing. There's nothing they were actually supposed to have done and yet they still hang
0: them. A nice way to research that is uh, actually uh, uh, the play, The Crucible, uh, Arthur Miller's uh, great play, The Crucible, about the Salem witch trials because although you won't get all of the minutiae about this court or that court, it really nicely encapsulates, well, actually it's horrifying, but you understand, it nicely encapsulates all of these all of these themes and motifs and it, it's 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 you know pretty much true to the to the the history of the day, uh, and it, it's a ni- it's a nicer way of 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 um, taking in some of this quite complicated information. I, I find I think that's a good uh, a good way of of really getting an understanding of, of what the Salem witch trials were all about.
1: Yeah, I'd like to read it one day. Is it actually directly about them, or is it yes. done allegorically? No, it's directly. No, it's, about no,
0: it's directly. Okay. It's it's um, allegorical in regards to the McCarthyism in the United States. Ah, uh, um, that, that's where I was the confused. Yes. No, no, you're spot on. With yes. is, is a it's yeah. a it's a, a play on many many levels. With with uh, certainly as the, but the actual play is about the Salem witch trials. Whereas the the, the 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 subtext is all about the McCarthyism that was all around when Arthur Miller was writing it. He being obviously an American playwright, so he was right in the in the heart Got of it. that. What
1: year was it written? Do you know? I can't remember
0: off the top of my it's head. In the fifties, yeah, at the height of that
1: mm-hmm. McCarthyism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, another. Um, Religious mania that sweeps the country and everyone copies it. Same kind of thing. People getting pushed out of their jobs. People getting shut down. People getting censored. People getting imprisoned. People never being able to work again. All, the, all the same thing as this, this convid thing. This, it's just religious mania. It's yep. the same template over and over again. Once you see the template for these things, you, you you don't really have to look any longer at the actual instances of the template. You can just see the template over and over again. And I think that kind of frees you from having to research these things over and over again because you kind of know that it's just going to be the same.
0: 1953.
1: 1953. And it, what amazes me about COVID is there's still a lot of people arguing about whether there's a virus or not. And this, this I, feel, I find staggering. You know, it's just a, a religion the same as anything else. And people are still arguing to this day about whether there's a virus or not, or whether it came from a lab in Wuhan or whether it came from someone nibbling on a bat or whatever it is. And they still just go on and on about this. They're caught in that, that trap. Whereas, in fact, of course, it's got nothing to do with that. I, I get this all the time. People say to me, how do you know there's no virus? Are you a virologist? But my, my answer to that is, why would I need to be a virologist if there isn't a virus? You know, it's just an unnecessary skill, right?
0: My problem with that, Simon, is... A virologist cannot explain and cannot show you the peer-reviewed uh, study that was done on how a virus is spread from human to human. They have no, they have no study on transmission that proves...
1: Catalypt. They can't even tell you how it's isolated. They can't even tell you the basics. So I've had people tell me that it isolates itself. I've had people tell me it gets isolated with a magic pipette. Um, I've had people say it gets, it gets isolated with an electron microscope. Never do you get a definitive answer as to how it's isolated. And that's because, of course, there there isn't one, because it's it's never been isolated. And, you know, the idea is if you they they claim they've sequenced it, but in order to sequence it, you first need to isolate it. Because if you if you if it's mixed up with other stuff like your own DNA or other alleged viruses, your sequencing will be a mixture of of the sequences of the two viruses. You'll just end up with a mess. So you have to have a pure sample. But there's no way of being able to make it pure yourself. Some people say they, they isolate it with a, a primer. But in order to make the primer, you first have to have a sample of the virus to test the primer on. So you've got like a circular argument. In order, in order to get the primer, you need the virus. But in order to make the virus, you need the primer. So it just goes around in a, in a big circle. And there's no, you know, it's kind of so obvious that this stuff is, is a lie. With, with, these, with these religions, I tend to look for, What I call a a, a religious trope. So, what I mean by that is it's usually a logical fallacy. A a trope is just a, in this context, means a a copied behavioral feature. So, for instance, if if, um, the fashion is to wear a green coat in winter, loads of people will go and buy a green coat. This is a, a trope, it's a copied behavioral instance, whatever, I don't know. So, going back to the virus thing i I look for a a religious trope and normally this takes the form of a logical fallacy it's not always but often it is a logical fallacy and and i'll I'll come back to that in just uh, a little minute but the other thing it can be is 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 often an appeal to magic so as soon as the um you know there's an appeal to magic so in this case the, the virus is isolated by by magic no one can say how it's done and that's, that's your religious trope right there. And that, that's all the indication we need that this is a religion and not a science.
0: Well, it's magically, magically transmitted from one person to another because we, do, we still do not have any evidence of how a virus is transmitted from human to human. And I know I bang on about it, but to me, that's the end of it because mm. if, if a virus yeah. can't be passed on from human to human, then, then vaccines are out. Um, I don't care whether it's been isolated or not because that's not how it's being shared you can't you can't close a country down you can't um, enforce lockdowns and close businesses and you know none of this stuff none of the other stuff to me um is is interesting at that point because unless this is something that is being shared from human to human and it's pr- you can prove that it is shared human to human Therefore, we can start figuring out how to do something about stopping that sharing from human to human. But what's happened is they wanted to put all the measures for stopping human to human transmission without ever proving that that's even a thing in the first place.
1: Exactly, yeah. So we, we think we live in this age of science. So everywhere around us, we're, we're uh, pummeled with all these ideas of science. And we're taught that because we live in an enlightened scientific age, everything is done on evidence and experiments and repeatable, this, that, and the other. But here we've got an example of something which just doesn't conform to that notion at all. Yet it's still called science. So something's wrong here. Either this isn't science, or or there's something wrong with science. One or the other. I mean, I, I personally think there's two bodies of knowledge, both called science. One is actual science, and the other is is religion. And we we just live in a, a religious age as as much as we ever have done in the Middle Ages or in the past or whenever it's the same kind of thing it's just the um the spots on the leopard are different if you like but it's still the same leopard
0: my niece works on a covid ward jesus died to save <laughs> you from your sins uh, th- these are both yours T- tell me more tell me more yeah so my niece works
1: on a covid ward there's a number of ways you can view this i my um my the way i view it now is is the logical fallacy of um affirming the consequence. And I'll explain what that is in a minute. So imagine these sentences, uh, COVID exists, therefore there's a COVID ward. Okay, so the way this fallacy breaks down is my niece works on a COVID ward, therefore COVID exists. So do you see how it's been inverted? So the first thing, the first concept is the COVID, and the second concept is the COVID ward. And we're saying that COVID causes there to be a COVID ward. Now, but that doesn't mean that if you see a COVID ward, it means there's COVID, right? Because that's, the implication is not the causality arrow. It doesn't run that way around. It's, it's backwards. And this is called affirming the consequence. So the consequent is the existence of the ward. And you affirm the existence of the consequent. And you imply that this means that you've proved the, the predecessor. And that, that's how this logical fallacy works. Another, another way of looking at it is like a circular kind of argument. So in order for there to be a COVID ward, we first have to accept that there's COVID. But the idea of there being COVID is the thing we're trying to prove with the COVID ward. So you've got a circle. So a lot of these things that you could, you could view them as more than one logical fallacy. And the, the ones you see all the time, are that, that circular one, by the way, is called petitio principii, which means begging the question. It's it's a uh, circular argument, basically. And this is one of the most common ones we see, and it can be one that's hard to understand because it has this circle in it where the result of something is also the cause. Um, And other ones you get, you get ad hominem attack quite a lot where people just try and say, oh, you would say that because you're a conspiracy theorist and that kind of thing. And then you get more basic things just like, like name calling and stuff like that. But... Really, you only see about three or four of these logical fallacies, and you see them over and over and over again. It's like I said, once you see the template, you don't need to look at all the examples of it because
0: you, you know what's, what's at play. I would argue there's no greater conspiracy theory than, quote-unquote, trust the science. That's yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> what science? Where? I think this is
1: another thing, of course. If you ask, people, the people who call you a conspiracy theorist but if you ask them what is a conspiracy theorist, they, they, they never have an answer. They, they, they don't know. And that's because, of course, you know, they, that thought hasn't come from them. It's come from their TV. And it's just come out of their mouth. But it hasn't gone through their head. And that's why they don't understand what it means. And this is the sad world we live in, where you know, there's so many people that just parrot what's on TV. And also, um, you know, the same is true in the... Alternative truth community as well. There's lots of things which exist which people just parrot for no reason with with no evidence, and I've got a list as long as your arm in front of me. Yeah, go on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, what happens a lot with these things is you get it's like like a sudden flash in the pan. So a particular news story will appear, and suddenly it'll be everywhere almost overnight. So it'll be all be all over social media so people will be sharing memes and stories about it and it'll be all over the press and it's like a kind of explosion it seems to appear everywhere simultaneously and um then it'll go on sometimes for i don't know two two weeks three weeks a month and then it will disappear so great example and then sometimes later it'll, it'll appear again for another period of two to three weeks and disappear again so a good example is this quantum computer. So, I don't know, this, this first appeared a few years ago, and suddenly there's an explosion of um, articles and stuff in the news and on Facebook and stuff about this quantum computer. But no one was able to ever explain how, what it was or how you make it, how to how actually go and build one. So we got this idea. No one really knows what it is, but everyone's – sending links to each other about this quantum computer and stuff like that. But when you ask any of them what it is, they're, they're adamant that it exists. But they'll only, instead of ask, answering the question what it is, they'll answer the question what's it used for. So they'll say, oh, it's used for um, solving complex mathematical probability things and that kind of thing. But no one will explain how you, how you build it or how to, how to actually design one, where can I go and buy one. And that's a lot like a lot of these things. And then a few few weeks later, it, it's disappeared. It's just gone like a like a flash. And then you know a year later, it'll it'll reach a resurgence as well. Another example is um the the whole flat Earth thing, of course, that that kind of exploded about I don't know five or six years ago. And I I think these things are uh, placed in the public domain deliberately in order to you know in order that alternative truth researchers will leap on them and 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 run with them and i don't know it's kind of it's kind of odd what, what's your take on the whole thing
0: truth or bait. <laughs> yeah. can we can we
1: hook
0: her can like we hook her true can we hook a credible truther with one of these um uh you know b- bizarre um so-called pieces of research i'm not having a go um you know specifically at people who want to study the nature of uh, the earth uh, which we are on i have no issues with that at all i'm i'm Partially interested in it, I think there are some very bizarre things regarding Antarctica that I don't understand and can't be reasonably explained, which I won't sort of bore everyone with here. But I, you know, I do think there are some interesting things there, and I'm interested in these mudflats. Uh, that are, they, they, they are. I have to say, I'm, I'm very intrigued. But the problem is, an awful lot of um, garbage is talked by people who, who, who are. Vehement. We seem to have like a group of religious zealots within the truth community now, which we didn't... I don't recall these people from 10, 15 years ago. I don't recall these little groups, these, these fanatics who say things like, well, if you don't believe the earth's flat, then you're not a real truther. Like, Hang on a second. I'm in search of truth. So I have to accept, as someone who's in search of truth, that I'm not going to find very much of it, probably. Because the amount that one individual can do in terms of searching for truth and, and individual research and/or experiments is relatively small, so you have to pick a lane or pick an area and focus on that if you want to go deep. If you want to have a general overview of the different, er- uh, different areas, different parts of, of the world, then you have to, at some point, you know, refer, you know, defer to so- or refer to other authorities in that area. So you're then relying on the research of, of other people whom you might trust for for various different reasons. Perhaps they've done some previous research that you found valuable, that you thought was credible, and therefore you, you're more willing to listen to what uh, they've uncovered in, in different areas. But I am concerned that we do have this growth of, they're, they're just as, as as big zealots as, as, uh, as the people that we're supposed to be against, the people who are telling us lies. We're supposed to be doing a better job than that. We're supposed to be doing actual research yeah. and actual scientific experiments. And then what I've found lately, over the last ten or fifteen years, maybe less actually, might not even be over that long. But these groups seem to be springing up everywhere that are absolutely, you know, convinced that you're a shill if you don't suddenly agree that the Earth is flat. Now, I'm always very suspicious of anybody who wants me to believe anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the and I, I, I don't know. I wonder whether this is being done deliberately to poison the well so for instance with the mud flood stuff that you you mentioned so with that there's there's the idea if you look around you especially here in london if you look around you can see a lot of buildings which are built uh partially underground in that they have windows that open out below the level of the street and in some cases they may have been built like that i don't really know but In some cases it looks decidedly weird that anyone would design a building with windows below ground, especially I've seen some where the windows actually don't even go out onto anything. They're just there's just earth behind them. And I, I don't think anyone would build a house like that and put a window in just to see some a big load of earth. So there's something funny going on there. I'm not saying that all of them have got something funny going I think some, some are probably built deliberately like that, maybe to put servants' quarters down there or, or whatever. So it's a possibility there are other explanations. But the trouble is with, with the people who research and a lot of their research is, is excellent. Is, is, and there's some YouTubers who have done some fantastic investigation into this, really meticulous. But a lot of them will go on about this Tartaria thing, which... Now, I, I don't know if there was a country called Tartaria. Maybe, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. I don't, I don't really know. They claim it was in Russia somewhere. And maybe there was. Who knows, right? Let's say there was, just for the sake of argument. There's no evidence or proof that this place was built, all these buildings, or was, or was the center of a pre-reset society, whatever these people go on about at all. Yet they all parrot this notion as if it were a given fact. The, the other thing is they, they all say the earth is flat. Now, it looks, and they parrot that, all of them. Now, it, it seems to me that there's some genuine research to be done here, but it seems to me that it's been bombarded with these tropes. And I think you, you said it right. It's, it's true, a truth of bait, maybe. Or maybe it's to dissuade people. And I, I was dissuaded from this whole area of investigation for years because all these people go on about Biblical floods, they're all going about the Bible and they go, Oh, in the Bible it says there's a flood, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of puts me off because I can't see why, if there was some genuine evidence that this had happened, why would you need to keep bringing up a book of fairy tales to justify your uh, point of view? You just wouldn't. So it seems to me that these elements have been inserted into that field of research in order to tarnish it and and put people off. And, you know, my evidence for this is it it put me off for, for years. And only now have I started looking into it, and I see a, a mixture of about 10% good research and 90% basically bullshit that's parroted from one to the other. And it, it's, it's a real shame that, that it's been allowed to get to that state, because a lot of people will be put off seeking the truth because of this. Same, same with, with Flat Earth, same thing.
0: It's like almost like a different kind of gatekeeper has been born uh, so, so there's, 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 is it truth or bait? That's one thing because you could um, make subsequently say in ten years' time prove all of these previously credible researchers uh, to be faulty or dodgy because you pull the rug from under and prove or disprove one of these you know bait theories that perhaps there is some evidence that completely disproves one way or the other. So, in that regard, that would then rend that that would then tarnish the reputations of previously well-respected. Uh, alternative or truthful researchers. So I, I like that. My initial reaction to your question was they're all truth bait, But another possibility, of course, and there are many possibilities, but another one that springs to mind is a different kind of gatekeeper. So the ordinary type of gatekeeper that would would hold on to a real information, if you're protecting real information that you don't want to go to a wide audience, you have to give some of it out in order to keep the smart people engaged and interested and and following you and listening to you in order to protect the really uh, valuable information. So they're the kind of sort of guru type benevolent sort of, you know, perhaps some of the people we follow now uh, fall into this category. But I think a new kind of gatekeeper has been born here where they are pretty aggressive in, in their manner they are absolute zealots about whatever their particular thing is whether it's mud, the mud floods or the flat earth or whatever it is and they are so they sort of go on the attack towards pe- people who are in completely different areas of research and point fingers and say well you don't discuss this therefore you're a shill it's like no that's not my area of expertise yeah. that's why I don't discuss that because i haven't personally put enough research into it and it seems to me that they are got they're, they're putting very uh, how do I put that politely? Uh, less. Mm, I can't. I can't put this politely. The, the, there seems to be a slew <laughs> of uh, relatively unintelligent, uh, loud-mouthed, tattoo-wearing, lager-drinking oiks that are shouting very loudly and making a lot of noise about certain uh, so-called truths. And I think it's there deliberately to put off uh, people who are uh, otherwise curious people who might go down say, a flat earth rabbit hole or might go down um, uh, the floods or or mud flood kind of uh, areas. And I I think that it, I really think that there's a a new kind of gatekeeper has been born amongst us, you know, since, um, I don't know, but but maybe I've only noticed, I have to be honest, I've only really noticed uh, this kind of zealotry over the past sort of five years I, I speculate yeah. 10 to 15 because maybe I just wasn't aware of it then. But lately, I do see these things springing up everywhere. And just, it might be that totally, you know, discreditable people, disreputable people, um, you know, t- basically making everybody else look bad. Because it, 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 it does reflect on p- people in other areas of research. You know, you've got Dr. Mike Yeadon, who's... Been you know working incredibly hard. Uh, when he woke, bless him, he woke up during the pandemic. The poor guy, he'd have been better off staying asleep, I think, in his position. But and and then you've got the, the, these very very loud people shouting and screaming that if you if you don't believe my theory of this or that or whatever, then you're not real. You're 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 a shill. You're a fake. You're a whatever. I just I think this is a very damaging and, and very um, shameful part of our of our. Um, I don't even know what to call us. For people who are in search of truth, I think it's a great shame that we we have these elements that are naturally sort of thrust into our group, even though we wouldn't consider them yeah. to be part of our group. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah do and you have a to ask thing. yourself where,
1: where it comes from, don't you? Mm. And I think I think there might be more than one place where this, this is goes from. So the idea of an agent provocateur is not a new one. You see these people all over the place. So... The idea that they, there could be some people sent by the security forces or whatever to disrupt things in this manner doesn't surprise me. And I think this probably does account for some of these people. But I don't think it accounts for all of them, you know. I think, I think there are a lot of people who are adamant about these things and, you know, they're saying, like you said, you know, you have to believe in my thing or otherwise you're a shill and all this kind of stuff. And I, I think they, they possibly... Under some kind of mind control. I don't know how how that would work or anything. I've got no real ideas. I can't prove it, obviously, but I don't think they're all paid shells. Although I think some of them are.
0: I agree. I, I think uh, actually, inadvertently, we've we're, we're, we've circled back round to Sheriff's experiment because, of course after his uh, that, 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 that's the one with the light bulb people so uh, there's a completely dark room and groups of people go in and they are absolutely convinced that this light has moved and they tell you by how much it's moved even though it definitely didn't move but what's interesting is at the end of the experiment um, it says here uh, when the subjects were interviewed after the experiment they stuck to the decision they made as a group So given all of this, it's clear that if a peer group were to contain uh, one or more people whose intention it was to deliberately deceive, then the subject would show a tendency to internalise this disinformation and may even become convinced that it is uh, their own unbiased opinion. So the idea that uh, it only takes one or two poisonous uh, little elves or, or uh, you know, shills or agent provocateurs, whichever words you'd like to use, in order to uh, contaminate people who are legitimately trying to research things, legitimately trying to find truth. Because once you're in that environment, you, you, your uh, worldview has been changed permanently because you apparently witnessed something together or you apparently researched something together. And that seems to have some kind of more powerful uh, effect on on. On the, on the subject or, on, you know, on, on the individual. So, yeah, it doesn't, it wouldn't, I don't think it would take a lot of, it doesn't take much to poison a well, does it? A few drops, maybe. I,
1: yeah. So, so what you, the idea we get here, of course, is that the, the Sharif experiment shows us that this internalization of falsehoods is a, a natural human characteristic and one we, which we can't really avoid. And it wouldn't surprise me if this weakness has been weaponized by those in control, to um, steer people away from the truth.
0: I happen to agree with you 100%. And of course, that leads to the next sort of logical step where you would say, well, how do we... Uh, try to avoid this in the future. Well, it, it, the answer is education, isn't it? Making young people aware of how the mind works. Of, of I, I hadn't come across uh, any of these uh, experiments. It was only in your presentation at the Open Mind Conference, and I can't remember the year. Maybe it was twenty fifteen or something like that. Sometime around twenty fifteen, the Open Mind Conference in Copenhagen, where yourself and Joanna van der Leer co-authors of The TV Delusion, took, uh, took us through some of the video clips of these experiments, which are all searchable online, by the way, very easy to find but I'd never come across them. And I find that extraordinary that we're not taught anything about the mind or anything about how we think. So how can we possibly, like, what are we doing when we go to school? Because I tell you what we're not doing, we're not learning how the mind, anything about how the mind might work and and what to be careful of and, and how to question your own thinking and even to make sure that you are thinking rather than just parroting what somebody else that you perceive to be an authority has told you.
1: Yeah, and another fascinating example of this is that Stanford prison experiment. Yes. Um, where they, they got some, two groups of students and they made one group be prisoners and the other group be prison guards. And they put the prisoners in the cells and they kind of cajoled the prison guards into exacting ever more ruthless punishments and things like that on the prisoners. and. You know, they completely went with it, and they turned into, like, animals. But the, the weird thing about it was that there were actually three groups of people. So there's the two groups of students, you know, one who are the prison guards and the other who are the prisoners, allegedly, ostensibly, rather. And then the third group are the experimenters themselves who are observing the whole thing. And at one point, the narrative of the thing leaked out into the minds of the experimenters, and they became embroiled in it as well. And that just shows you, you know, you construct this false scenario, everyone goes along with it, and eventually it just over, over spills and leaks out into the population at large. And eventually they had to stop the experiment because the, because the, the experimenters were, were, were believing in it. And that is like really disturbing, really weird. Sorry, it's quite a long um, thing. I haven't explained it that well, but because it, it's, it's quite lengthy to explain. I invite everyone to read, it, read the book.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's 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 fascinating and it it does it goes to show that we're we're extremely poor at taking care of our ourselves and our our young people like to to not understand this information and to not learn about these experiments that have been previously conducted it leaves us open to such rank manipulation by all kinds of nefarious people, let alone, uh, you know, governments and state organizations. It leaves us very vulnerable. Like this, the kinds of things that we're taught in school about oxbow lakes and hanging valleys. I mean, I, I just, I, I despair. Like, I, Isn't it much more important that we learn that, you know, the mind is quite easy to manipulate. We should probably learn where we're weak. We need to learn about logical fallacies. Isn't it more important that, that we learn about the self uh, and, and, and how to uh, properly govern the self before we start trying to influence, I don't know, with world peace or, or shouldn't we be looking internally and be given the tools to try to figure ourselves out more so that we don't, at least that we don't make a mess, at least we don't make the world a worse place to live in?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's a critical age, isn't there, between maybe the age of seven to 12, maybe? And during that time, if you allow your child to be brainwashed by these false narratives and stuff that are taught to them in schools, I, th- I think you're, you're doing the kid a, a big disservice and one that might take them maybe 30, 40 years to dispel if, if indeed they ever do. Whereas if during those ages, they, they were taught at home and taught how to think and taught what the pitfalls of thinking are, what the traps are, they'd be in a much better state for the rest of their life. They, they, with some real knowledge under their belt rather than all these these falsities
0: yeah i i, I 100% agree with you i think it's a travesty that we're, we're being lied to on such a scale that we're actually allowing our children to be harmed psychologically damaged yeah. uh, and, and, and and grossly manipulated by this this school system i, I you know I, I really think the answer is to, to to educate your own because at least they won't then be schooled and it's it's trying to get people to understand the difference between education, real education and schooling, they are completely different things. And I'm sorry to say that it is by design that your children are treated in a certain way, i.e. like a prisoner whilst they're in school. Just because it's got rainbows and beautiful colours, it doesn't mean it's, it, it's a healthy place for your children. And one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is, is helping people to understand that if you if you damage a child psychologically, that's going to cost you again and again and again. It's going to cost you psychologically. It's going to cost you physically. It's going to cost you financially. Trying to fix a broken mind, it would seem to me at least, is uh, far more difficult than fixing a broken leg. I, I just, I think our minds are way more um, vulnerable uh, than our bodies in, in, in some respects, unless you learn how to harness them. If you learn how to harness them, you know, your mind can be one of the most powerful things on earth. But I, I really think that this is all being uh beaten out of people during their their schooling they're 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 made to conform uh you know there's there's', there's strange things around shame uh there's a, a humiliation there's there's an awful lot of of uh strong psychological dangers that are happening and we're allow we're just allowing them to happen uh, i really i do think it it's 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 immoral i think it, i think it's it's gross i, I really I'm I'm quite upset about it because, you know, when you can see it happening, you can't unsee it. And it's quite, I I, I get frustrated with myself that I'm not better able to articulate that once a child has has sustained psychological damage, that might be with them forever. We're not, we don't know everything about the mind. There's a a hell of a lot of things we don't know. And I I just think that we ought to take much greater care of of the psychological health and well-being of our young people in particular than, than we're currently doing
1: yeah and this this just underlines the the importance of the the work you're doing with all this stuff in in that you're presenting this to people in a way that's both relevant to them and practical and informative. And, you know there are lots of other sources of knowledge, you know but I don't think many people are going to sit down and watch a two hour video on the mud flood. i mean I, I would, but I'm probably about the only person who'd do that. but people are interested in the, in the psychological welfare welfare of themselves and their children and if the idea of psychological welfare can be brought over to them in an accessible manner then that's absolutely brilliant and I, I think more people should be doing this it's just it's it's great that you're doing this but i think more people should be with you
0: well thank you but you know your your work has inspired me to, that's why i'm one of the reasons one of the key reasons i'm doing what i'm doing now i'm a huge fan of your book as you know that's uh, if you haven't read it people that's the tv delusion the TB Delusion, A Psychology of Belief by Simon Day and Joanna der And it certainly has inspired this work and it has encouraged me to go out and I've read some of the books that you mentioned in your book um, and it, it's made me branch out. Into, it's kind of helped me to crystallize what the main attack on on humanity is and how it's being perpetrated and it's all it's all through the mind it's it's way less physical than than you would think if you but people can easily see bombs you know if a bomb was being dropped on your child's school you wouldn't send them there because you can see the bomb and you can see the danger. But cultural Marxism, oh, no, that's just fine. Just drop little Johnny off, he'll be fine. Cultural Marxism, yeah, no, but it doesn't matter if they learn that. They learn that the individual doesn't matter and that it's all about community and everyone's the same and we're all equal. Yeah, you just go learn that. I... I, I I'm going to have to find a better way to articulate it, that's for sure. But with people like yourself to help me in your work, Simon and uh, Joanna as well, and and many, many other books that I'm reading, hopefully I will be able to better and better explain this uh, in in the future.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That's lovely to hear. Let's hope it gets made available to a wider audience.
0: Indeed. Speaking of which, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am presenting uh, a programme called Rescue Your Children, and that will be on the 4th, 5th and 6th of August. That will be 8pm UK time. Apologies to people who are abroad. Uh, but I do have to sleep sometimes. So 8 p.m., Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that's the 4th, 5th, 6th of August. It's called Rescue Your Children. And I'm going to be taking you through the state of state education, based on my experiences as a classroom mathematics teacher, GCSE mathematics examiner, present examiner. I'll be taking you through uh, the state of home education because an awful lot of the home ed provision is it'd be like leaping out of the frying pan straight into the fire in some cases. And I want you to be able to be able to at least avoid those pitfalls. That's my, one of the things that I'm really kind of focusing on at the moment. And finally, uh, my solution to this, this huge mess of a problem called schooling is a guerrilla education where you're going to really educate your children. So it's a three night training program. And at the end of it, my aim is for you to be able to, if you wanted to, remove your children from the state education system and to, and to build a wonderful curriculum with your child at the center of it. Uh, I'll be taking you through some of the, the, the psychology aspects that we've been talking about. And of course, the all-important, how will I socialize my children if I don't send them to school? Believe me, socialisation at school is the most dangerous kind. And I'll, it's actually two psychologists that have uncovered that. That's uh, Dr. Gordon Neufeldt and Gabor Matte, And I'll be talking about Hold On To Your Kids and their wonderful uh, research on child psychology during that programme. So if you can make it, please, please do. It's completely free. That's the 4th, 5th, 6th of August. And I will give you the training freely, willingly and gladly. And I will support you if you want to take it further beyond, beyond those dates. Simon, thank you so much for um, educating me once more. I've really enjoyed our conversation again. And uh, I very, very much look forward to our next one. Thanks very
1: much for having me on, Sarah. It's been a blast. Thank you. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.